Well, as we continue in worship, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word uh, to 1 John chapter 2, where we will be focused on verses 7 through 11 today. Again, that's 1 John verse 2. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word. Now, as I have been able to preach periodically, I've been studying through 1 John, which is a letter written by the beloved Apostle of Christ, John, to encourage Christians in the midst of confusion, as they had false teachers who were coming in to confuse the church and to draw away members into a Gnostic perversion that called itself a form of Christianity. And here in this letter, John says again and again that he has written so that Christians may know that we truly belong to Christ. That's the whole point of his letters, that we would know that we belong to Christ. And so to help us, he gives us real-life practical tests that we can use and that we must use, indeed, to examine the genuineness of our faith. Chapter 1 includes the first test of the genuine Christian. That is the confession of sin and trust in Christ for forgiveness and cleansing. Those who truly belong to Christ know their sin and they hate their sin because that sin is incompatible with God's holy character. Those who belong to Christ indeed confess their sins and trust in Christ's blood as their only grounds for forgiveness and sanctification. And they grow in holiness by the power of the Spirit. Chapter 2 begins with a test of deliberate obedience to Christ's commands. Those who truly belong to Christ do not ignore or grumble against His commandments, but instead they love Christ's commandments. They strive to order their whole lives in glad obedience to His word and his ways. And as Christ's people wrestle against remaining corruption within ourselves, they look to Christ who satisfies who satisfied God's wrath for their sins and who empowers them to walk in God's ways more and more. And now in verse 7 of chapter 2 we come to the third test of the genuine Christian. That is the test of love for the saints. Let us read together. And for context, we will read from the beginning of the chapter, 1 John chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, and reading through 11. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And this is now the focus of our section in verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness, 
and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the holy, perfect, and sufficient word of God. Let us go before him now in prayer. God, our Lord and Creator, our Maker and our Father, we come to you now confessing our need of help. We come to you confessing the natural dullness of our minds to understand and believe spiritual things. And God, we ask that you would grant us faith and life and understanding by the power of your Spirit today. God, we pray for those today who yet to this point have been walking in darkness up until now. We ask that the light of your gospel would shine into their hearts, that you would pour out on them a living heart, that you would grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that today would be the day of salvation for them. God, we pray for your people here today. We ask that you would cause us to rightly understand our own hearts before you. We ask that you would cause us to live as a people of integrity, to live as a people who are honest, allowing ourselves to be exposed by your word, that we would Say with David, see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, we ask that you would cause your people to be a people marked out by love for the saints, to the praise of your glorious grace. God, we ask that as we love the saints, as we love one another in the context of local churches, we ask that you would cause the world to see and to know and to believe that we truly are disciples of Christ. We follow our Lord who taught us to love as he loved. God, please grant us aid and understanding. Please grant us attentive minds and hearts. And please cause us to profit from the hearing of your word as you apply it to our hearts by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in keeping with our typical pattern, I will begin with exposition today and then turn to application in the end. We'll consider the exposition under three points. First, in verse 7, we see that the commandment to love is from the beginning. The commandment to love is from the beginning. Look with me in verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Now, church, the first key we need to establish here to understand this section of God's word is what commandment John is writing about. And we find that commandment given positively to us in verse 10, where he writes, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. See, the commandment that John is writing is that Christians must love one another. It's the commandment that the beloved apostle received from Christ and records for us on Jesus' own lips in the upper room in John 15, verse 12, where he said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so it is that John says they have had this commandment from the beginning. Now by saying they have had it and have heard it from the beginning, he points indeed to the beginning of their faith in Christ. But at the same time, by calling it an old commandment, he is also pointing to its ancient origins. Before Jesus commanded us to love one another in the upper room discourse of John 15, he had already told us of the greatest commandments in similar terms. In Matthew 22, another apostle records Jesus' words. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. This is a familiar passage. And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now see, church, this commandment to love one another within the body of Christ is an application of that second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Your closest and dearest neighbors indeed are your eternal neighbors, fellow members in Christ's kingdom. And when Christ gave this commandment in the, upper, or in, uh, the, the great commandment, he was not giving a new commandment even then. He was actually quoting an old commandment, as many of us recognize, one that predated the incarnation of Christ by another 1,400 years. It's written for us in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, where the people of God are commanded, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now notice here again, even in Leviticus, the first application of love for neighbor is within the covenant community of God, the children of Israel. Already some 1,400 years before Christ taught the disciples to love one another, God had told his people to love their neighbor. And in this focus on love for God's people, we need to be clear that God is not in any way excluding love for the outsider. But rather, God is giving us the more fundamental commandments first, out of which love for the stranger must flow. If we do not have Christian love for the people of God, then we have no business claiming to have Christian love for the world. And yet still, the commandment is even more ancient than Leviticus and the desert wanderings of Israel. What is it that God required of Cain, but that he would love his brother and not hate him? And what was God's design for Adam and Eve, but that they would love each other, with Adam leading and protecting Eve, and Eve helping and serving Adam? From the very creation, God, uh, from the very creation of mankind, God has required that man would love his neighbor, precisely because God created us in his own image. The duty to love comes to us directly from God's own eternal, unchanging character, because, as John will summarize in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. And so the commandment to love is from the beginning. There is no more ancient commandment, there is no more fundamental commandment than to love God and to love your neighbors, because we and they are made in his image. That leads us to our second point of exposition, which we see in verse 8. The commandment to love is exemplified and empowered by Christ. The commandment to love is exemplified and empowered in Christ. Follow with me in verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, this is kind of a dense verse. And the first thing that catches our eyes is that John just said in verse 7 that he's not writing a new commandment. And then he comes right here and says, again, I say to you, I am writing you a new commandment. So what's going on here? Why does he seem to contradict himself? Well, John is using a paradoxical truth to catch our attention. In one sense, the commandment is not new at all. But in another sense, it is radically new. 
John is saying that the commandment to love the saints is not a novel commandment because we've had the essence of that commandment from the very creation of mankind. And yet, in another sense, this commandment to love one another is new because it has come to us now in Christ. And because it has come to us now in the power of the Spirit. And because it has come to us now with greater clarity, with greater power than at any time under the Old Covenant. It is new also in its special focus here, its clarity of its focus on the love for the saints. Jesus himself called this commandment new. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, he said to the disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In this new commandment, the church is a special object of our love for neighbor. And it is indeed our love for the church and not our love for the stranger that proves to the world that we are Christ's disciples. And then regarding the novelty of this commandment, John says that it is true in him. That is true in Christ. And he says it is indeed true in Christ first because Christ has shown us that love for others flows from love for God. In the great commandments, Christ teaches us the right ordering of our affections. Love for God comes first, and love for neighbors is decisively second. This is because true godly love for neighbor cannot exist without love for God. The natural man cannot love as God commands in any direction. But when we love God, having been born again by the Spirit's work, then we are free to love as God has commanded us to. This commandment to love the saints is true in Christ also because imitation of Christ's love as the standard gives us a new and fuller understanding of what love requires. Jesus further explains the source and shape of his love for the disciples in John 15. I would invite you to turn with me to John 15 as we'll spend a moment here. We'll consider verses 9 through 17 of John chapter 15. John records the words of Jesus. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Now here in verses 9 and 10, we see first that Christ's love for the disciples flows out of his love for the Father, expressed in righteous conformity to the Father's commandments. He speaks of his abiding in the Father's love and their abiding in his love through obedience. 
In verse 11, we then see that Christ loves His disciples for the sake of their complete joy. That is, their true and eternal joy in restored fellowship with God as Creator and Father. In verse 13, we see that Christ's love for the disciples is humble and self-sacrificial because He lays down His life for His friends. In verses 15 and 16, we see that Christ's love for the disciples is a sanctifying love as He speaks God's Word to them so that they would bear fruit. Fruit that will last forever, both in the fruit of the Spirit within their own lives and in the fruit of the disciples whom they will bring to Christ's eternal kingdom with them. And there in verses 12 and in verse 17, we see that Christ commands us to imitate His example of godly love. So see what Christian love is. The love that is true in Christ is a love that flows from loving obedience to the Father and the Son. It is a love that humbly serves others for the sake of their eternal good. It is a love that speaks God's word to help others grow in holiness and to grow in fruitfulness for the sake of Christ's kingdom. Friend, do you see how impossible this kind of love is for the natural man? It is utterly contrary to our very nature. This is not at all how the world defines love either. This standard of love violates the golden rule of our society by making judgments about the desires and the conduct of those whom we love. Because Christian love cannot affirm any desire or conduct that is contrary to God's holy law. This kind of love is contrary to the natural man because it humbles and displaces our selfish desires and replaces them with a desire for the glory of God and a desire for the eternal salvation and redemption and fruitfulness of others. Turning back now to 1 John chapter 2. In verse 8, John also says that this new commandment is not only true in Christ, but he says it is true in you. This new commandment to love the saints is true in us as Christ's disciples. See, because of Christ's life, His death, and His resurrection for us, Christ empowers us to imitate His love by the power of the indwelling Spirit whom He sent to us. We are able, as Christians, to love as we could not love without the indwelling Spirit, because He empowers us constantly for growth in grace and in holiness and growth in love for the saints. Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, you can turn there if you're quick, Paul explains how Christ has produced this supernatural love in us in Romans chapter 5, in the first five verses. He writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. See, church, because of our justification through faith in Christ, we are being sanctified and we will not be disappointed in our hope precisely because the Holy Spirit has poured into our hearts the love of God. This is nothing natural or ordinary. This is indeed a supernatural ability to love others as we have been loved by God. 
This is a new ability that's experienced in us with a new fullness because Christ has ascended and he has sent the Holy Spirit to be our indwelling helper. Finally, in verse 8 of 1 John chapter 2, John says that he writes this new commandment to us, which is true in Christ and in us. Why? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining. Now here I don't think I can explain this any better than John Calvin already has. So here are his words. He says, Since Christ, the Son of Righteousness, has shown, while before there was only dim light, we have the perfect radiance of divine truth, like the ordinary brilliance of midday. Because Christ has come, because he has shown in the world, we now have the perfect radiance of divine truth, like the ordinary brilliance of the midday sun. It is in the revelation and transformation of Christ that we see fully what was only understood before in shadows. See, indeed, today the time of blindness is behind us. The darkness is fading away and the light of Christ is ever advancing, both in the hearts of his people and in the world as Christ builds his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. In verses 7 and 8, we've covered these first two points of our exposition. First, the commandment to love is from the beginning. Second, the commandment to love is exemplified and empowered in Christ. Now, the remaining three verses illustrate our third point of exposition this morning. That is, the commandment is realized in the believer. The commandment is realized in the believer. Now, as we dive into these verses, I want to address a point of vocabulary for the sake of clarity. Here, John is telling us how we should understand those who claim to know and trust in Christ. He's speaking to us about those who call themselves Christians and not about those who openly reject Christ. Now, as with commentators and preachers, both old and new, I will often use the word professor to speak of one who claims to be a Christian. Now, we're somewhat familiar with this because we often talk about professing believers to speak of those who claim to have faith in Christ, whether or not that faith is real. To profess means to declare publicly, and a professor, aside from being a teacher at a university, is one who publicly declares their faith and allegiance to a cause. And so here we are considering those who profess their faith in and allegiance to Christ. These are professors of Christian faith. If you do much reading in Reformed or Puritan traditions, all the way up to the likes of J.C. Ryle and Charles Spurgeon, you'll find this use of the word professor, so now you know what it means. And now you know not to envision the, the college teacher, but to envision your pewmates, your co-workers, your family, and even yourself as those who say that they know Christ. And here in 1 John verses 9 through 11, we are shown the contrast between true professors and false professors. Follow with me in verses 9 through 11 of 1 John chapter 2. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother, is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness, and walks in darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See, church, the commandment to love is realized in the believer. Because our genuine Christian love for the brothers displays our genuine Christian love for Christ, which is indeed a necessary fruit of saving faith. 
Verse 10 says that he who loves his brother abides in the light. Back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, just glance across the page, and John explains his purpose in writing. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, why? That you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John's whole purpose in writing is that we would have fellowship with God. And in 1 John 1, again, same chapter, just a couple verses later, verses 5 through 7, he explains how it is that we have fellowship with God and with his people. In verse 5, he writes, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, church, to abide in the light, as verse 10 says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. To abide in the light is to abide in fellowship with God and in fellowship with his people through the forgiveness of sins. What is it then to walk in darkness? To walk in darkness is to be separated from God and from his people, having no participation in the forgiveness of sins in Christ. The one who loves his brother in Christ is indeed bearing the fruit of the Spirit's work in the life of a justified believer. But the one who hates the brothers displays the fruit of a heart that has not been touched by the grace of God through faith in Christ. Now this seems like an extreme contrast, you say. It's either love or hate. Is there nothing in between the two? In order to understand this, we need to also understand what hate means here in this context. And what it means in contrast to love. In Luke 6, verse 22, Jesus provides for us a helpful definition of hatred that is important to consider in this test of genuine faith. Jesus says to his disciples, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. See, church, hatred does not have to mean the extreme of murderous intentions in the way that Cain hated his brother Abel. But hatred is also found in exclusion, in reviling, in casting out. A disregard for brothers and sisters in Christ and a failure to love is tantamount to hatred in Christ's definition. This is indeed the kind of despising that God punished with sickness and death in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11. When some went ahead feasting and others went hungry, they called it the Lord's Supper. And their disregard for the needs of their brothers and sisters was deserving of death and caused their church gatherings to be for the worse and not for the better. The hatred that John is describing here is that of refusing to love the saints simply on the account of their union to Christ. And John tells us here that hatred for brothers reveals a darkness that leads to disorientation and then to blindness. This is in verse 11. The professing believer who hates his brothers and sisters in the church is a living contradiction of 1 John 1, 7 that says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleansed us from all sin. No, rather the professing believer who does not love her brothers and sisters in the church, they are the fulfillment of 1 John 1, 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
John contrasts the one who loves his brother and has no cause for stumbling with the one who hates his brother and walks around in the darkness, not knowing where he's going. See, walking in the darkness provides plentiful opportunities for stumbling. And it leads those who think they are headed for eternal life, actually stumbling unawares towards eternal condemnation instead. What's more, walking in darkness doesn't only keep us away from the light for a time, but walking in darkness actually produces blindness in us. God has illustrated this in creation. All throughout the world there are caves where fish live in the caves, and over time, because the fish have no use for their eyes in the utter darkness of these caves, in many places the fish have lost their eyes entirely. They have eye sockets where eyes once were, but they have no eyes, they have no sight, and even if the light were to come to them, they would have no use for it. So it is too with us. When we walk in darkness, we have no use for sight. And so what natural sight God has given us through His common grace is gradually weakened, is ultimately removed through disuse. This is described to us in Scripture as the hardening of the heart. And Scripture reveals that the blindness of hardening is caused both by God in one aspect and by the sinner in another. Because the hardening of the heart is God handing the high-handed sinner over into the rebellion and the depravity that they have freely chosen for themselves. He is removing the restraint of conscience, removing what vision of light they had that once hindered them in the pursuit of sin. This darkness leading it to blindness works itself out in the context of local churches, too. See, once the professor of faith in Christ begins to disregard the, state, the saints, he then finds it easier to ignore their needs. And once he disregards their needs, he finds it easier to neglect gathering with them and to learn of their needs. And from the distance of refusing to gather, he then finds it easier to see only the flaws and none of the graces in God's people. One day the professor then sees no reason for regarding the saints differently than any other stranger in the world. Ultimately, they turn out to be cut off from the people of God with no desire to be grafted back in. And on the day of judgment, that professor finds himself shut out, shut away in the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. They find themselves echoing Matthew 25, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment. Hear me, friend. This is a serious warning for the one who does not love the saints with a humble, sacrificial, sanctifying love. Because Christ identifies with his blood-bought bride, to refuse to love the saints is a refusal to love Christ himself. And it will lead to eternal condemnation. In our exposition, we've considered the... the that the commandment to love is from the beginning. The commandment to love is exemplified and empowered in Christ, and the commandment to love is realized in true believers. And now I want to turn to our application in four brief points. The first, I want you to consider your affection for the body of Christ. John writes here to help assure the Christian of the genuineness of their union to Christ the genuineness of their participation in his resurrection. 
And he gives us such practical tests to rightly examine the true condition of our souls. Here the test is whether or not you love the saints, and now it's time to apply the test. Those who love the saints abide in the light and have no cause for stumbling. Those who despise the saints walk in darkness and do not realize that they are stumbling towards destruction. Which are you? Do you love the saints or do you despise the saints? Do you care for other Christians simply because Christ has set his love on them? Do you walk in love by doing good to the brothers and sisters, by practicing hospitality and mercy and service to the brothers and sisters who are in need? Do you delight to gather with the saints and count it a loss to have to miss the assembly? Do you seek to speak the truth of God's word in love for the saints so that they would grow together with you in holiness? Or on the other hand, do you find yourself really just not liking Christians that much? Do you find that their needs are a burden that you don't want to have to deal with? That their insistence on God's moral standard is discouraging to you? Do you find that their sins against you are unforgivable? No matter that God can forgive them, I won't forgive them because they hurt me too deeply. Do you find ready-made excuses to avoid gathering with the saints? Or do you slip away from the assembly of the saints with as little contact as possible, desiring not to be known? Do you keep Christians outside the core of your life and generally ignore them? I'd like to invite you to take a moment for reflection, considering your own heart, considering your own affection towards the saints. I know this can be uncomfortable. This is a serious consideration because there are indeed many on the last day who will say, Lord, Lord, whom Christ will respond by saying, Away from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. If you are here today, I do not want that to be your destiny. I do not want that to be what you hear from Christ on the last day. It is better today to find out indeed that what you have thought was faith is not and to have time to repent and to receive mercy, to be reconciled to God. Now, how should we respond as we've reflected on our hearts? Second point of application. To the Christian, take heart. If you consider your affections for the saints and you recognize that you do indeed have true love for the brothers and sisters that flows from your love for Christ, your Savior, take heart. Your humble, sacrificial, sanctifying love for brothers and sisters is a real sign of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I had the privilege of speaking with a brother just yesterday about the ordinary means of grace, and he pointed out how easy it is to be deceived, to be unimpressed by the means of grace, because they seem so common. They seem so unspiritual to our natural intuitions. But when we remember what we are by nature... When we remember that we were once rebels, opposed to God's will and to God's ways, hell-bent on satisfying our own desires, well, then we can see what a miracle it is that there would be anything good in us at all. Titus 3 helps us to remember and to see the miracle of holiness in our once wretched hearts. In Titus 3, beginning in verse 3, 
For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration, through the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, church, true love for the saints is a miracle that's worked in the Christian's heart by the divine power of the Holy Spirit himself as he indwells every genuine believer. It is an utter, fundamental transformation of our very nature. Third point of application. Christian, love the saints for Christ's sake. Love the saints for Christ's sake. Even as you already love the saints, go on and strive to love all the more, receiving and serving them as an expression of receiving and serving Christ himself. Christ identifies with the saints so we should, likewise, we should likewise identify the saints with Christ. Consider with me Matthew 25. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Consider verses 31 through 40. I mentioned the negative warning of this, but here we'll consider the, the positive uh, encouragement of this. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on His left. And the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, You blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or when did we see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Church, the world, many churches miss the emphasis there that Jesus is not talking about what we do to the poor stranger alone. He is speaking about what we do to the poor Christian. The least of these, my brethren, not the least of these, my enemies, the least of these, my brethren. And as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. When we love the saints in humble, sacrificial, sanctifying service, we are loving Christ himself. Let us strive to love and serve the saints week in and week out with all the zeal that we would show if Christ himself were to walk through the doors right now. Consider with me also 1 Corinthians 11. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper today in a moment, this is a fitting passage for us to consider. 1 Corinthians 11, 
verses 20 through 22, and then verses 28 and 29. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, you dis- or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. And then in verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the body. As we come to the Lord's table in a moment, we need to discern around us the body of Christ. We need to recognize here in this room the gathering of the saints, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, and we need to set our affection on one another for the simple reason that Christ has set his affection on each other. Christ has set his affection and has purchased his bride with his own precious blood. Love your brother and sister in Christ because you love Christ. Let me speak now to the one who has considered and found that your life is not marked by a distinct and and different love for the saints. To those who find themselves to be loveless, I would encourage you, I would would plead with you today to appeal to Christ for mercy. As you honestly consider your heart and life, if you find that there is not a distinct difference from the world in your love for the saints of God, you need to recognize what the Apostle John says about your present condition. You have been walking in darkness and not in the light of Christ. But today, God is gracious to you. By His grace, the light of His Word is shining right here, right now, so that you can see and you can receive mercy and you can no longer need to stumble about unaware of your hellbound direction. As we consider this, as we consider repentance unto salvation, it's so important to recognize and to remember that while love for the saints is indeed a test of the genuine Christian, it is not the cause of the genuineness of one's salvation. Love for the saints is the fruit of our salvation and not the cause of it. The old analogy of the root and the fruit is helpful here. If you have a tree that is producing bitter fruit, where do you go to solve the problem? You don't start by trying to help the bitter fruit that's already on the branches. You go right to the root. You need to deal with the root of the problem. If you recognize today that you do not regard the saints as worthy of your love, simply on account of their union with Christ, you cannot start by seeking to love the saints. To do so would be striving to do by human power what can only be done by divine power. If you recognize that you do not love the saints, as all true believers do, you must start by loving Christ. You need to be reconciled to God the Father through faith in the perfect sacrifice of Christ. He lived the perfectly righteous life that we have all failed to live. He suffered on the cross in our place the full weight of God's wrath that we each deserve for our rebellion against God who made us. He rose victorious over death and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he lives to make intercession, to plead and to to go between us and God, to mediate for all who trust in Christ alone as their salvation and their righteousness. If you are here today and you recognize that you are not one who loves the saints, then I would call on you today to believe the gospel, 
to trust in Christ and to receive the Holy Spirit who will produce in you loves that are contrary to your nature. He will produce in you a love for the saints because they are Christ's beloved blood-bought bride. If you see Christ for who He is, then you will see the saints for who they are. And you will love and serve the saints with heartfelt gladness just as you would love and serve Christ in our very midst. Let us go to God together in prayer. God, you are holy and righteous in all your ways. Your wisdom is perfect. Your word is true. God, we come to you today aware of how challenging and difficult a passage this can be. We come to you today aware of how offensive this teaching is to the pride of fallen man. God, we come to you today recognizing that we cannot understand and receive and trust your word apart from the grace of your spirit at work within us. So God, we do pray, especially for those who recognize that they are not marked out from the world by a love for the saints, that they do not have a love for you that extends to a love for your beloved and precious blood-bought bride. We ask that you would quicken them today, that you would indeed convict them of their estrangement from God, from you. That you would convict them of their separation from Christ, that you would cause them to see that they have nothing to look forward to in their current condition but judgment and condemnation eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. And God, we ask that you would cause them to see by the light of your Spirit the goodness of your gospel. That you would cause them to see and to treasure and to marvel at the grace of a God who would love sinners, who would love rebels so much that he would send his own Son to fulfill all righteousness for us and then to suffer to suffer the worst shame and torture that human beings could push out, and yet to suffer even greater measures of wrath in his soul on the cross as you unleashed upon upon his soul the full measure of your wrath for the sin of all he was redeeming. God, for those of us here today who have recognized and received and trusted in Christ and who are seeking to order our lives according to your word, who are seeking to love the saints that you've called us to and seeing the fruit of your grace within our lives, God, we give you thanks. We know that anything good in us does not come from us, but anything good in us comes from your Holy Spirit. We confess that we were once children of wrath like the rest of mankind, led astray, following after the world, following after the flesh, and following after the devil. We thank you that your spirit was poured out on us to give us life, to give us sight, and cause us to see and to receive mercy in Christ. We thank you that Christ did willingly shed his blood for us. And we thank you that he gave proof to the power of his sacrifice and his righteousness in our place by rising from the dead and by ascending back to the right hand of the Father. We thank you that he lives to intercede for us. God, we pray for the the saints here today uh, that you would cause us not to be drawn away after uh, false expressions that call themselves Christian, that you would cause us not to be drawn away after those who love to show signs and wonders, who love to uh, perform uh, so-called miracles, who love to wow the eyes as the uh, false teachers of uh, John's day did. 
God, we ask that you would cause us to marvel every day and every week that there is yet any good in us. That you would cause us to marvel at the miracle of love that you have given us for Christ, love that you have given us for your law, and love that you have given us for your people. God, that is not natural to us, and we ask that you would cause us never to come to think of that as something common, never to think of that as something ordinary or something that is uh, just automatically granted, but that you would cause us always to remember that we are utterly dependent on your miraculous work in transforming our very natures. God, please do cause us to look into the eyes of our brothers and sisters and to see in them Christ himself. Cause us to seek to love and to serve even the least of our brothers and sisters as, as serving Christ himself, recognizing that if he was willing to stoop to this earth to shed his own blood for them, we should be willing to sacrifice. We should be willing to humble ourselves. We should be willing to do what is needed to serve our brothers and sisters in their times of need. God, cause us to count it a joy. As we come to your table, we ask that you would cause us to rightly recognize the body of Christ in our midst, that we would receive the Lord's Supper with hearts full of love for our brothers and sisters, grateful for your work of reconciling us, not to God as, uh, as pillars uh, of individual salvation, but reconciling us to God and in the process reconciling us to one another as one new mankind, as one new family who will delight to spend all eternity together. We pray that you would glorify yourself and your people. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.